Let's also turn to New Testament passage, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. And then we'll read through the 13th verse of uh, chapter 10. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Turn also in our book of forms and prayers to uh, Lord's Day 52. I know that I have Lord's Day 51 in your bulletin, and that would be the correct Lord's Day, but in uh, preparing this sermon, my eye fell upon Lord's Day 52, question and answer 127, and I prepared a sermon on it before I realized my mistake. And so uh, I trust the Lord will uh, turn my mistake into a blessing, and you'll find good from my uh, uh, message that's somewhat out of order, and we'll return and uh, consider Lord's Day 51 at a different occasion. So uh, reading from Lord's Day 52, what does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. How do you conclude this prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of you because as our all-powerful king, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. 
and because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. What does that little word amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be, for it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian life is a spiritual warfare, and uh, that means that we have to fight. We have to fight all the way uh, to rest and victory that awaits us. In Psalm 59, we, we see David in the thick of it, you might say. And as the title indicates, this psalm was written in connection with that occasion that's uh, recorded in 1 Samuel 19, when uh, Saul sent his soldiers uh, to uh, bring David, uh, that he might have him killed. And uh, that's the context in which David here uh, speaks about uh, bloodthirsty uh, enemies, mighty enemies that were gathered against him. Uh, like like angry, vicious dogs, uh, characterized by lying and and cursing, and uh, it's also clear in this psalm that that David expands his perspective and and universalizes uh, this instance of people gathered against him to describe uh, the nations of the world, really in their hostility against the church the nations of the world whom God will punish for their wickedness. Ultimately, we might see in this passage, indeed, uh, spiritual warfare as it is waged against a world that is hostile to God and to his people. And uh, the world in its enticements and in its malice, indeed, is one of, those, uh, three, one of the threefold enemies that we have to contend with. We hear the psalmist crying out with his sense of need, Deliver me! Deliver me! In verse 1, again in verse 2, Defend me, he prays. And three times he speaks of God as his defense in this warfare that he is involved with. And we heard the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 say, I fight! I fight! And there he is talking about that spiritual warfare that must be waged against his own flesh. It's a warfare of self-discipline over his body, against the kind of self-indulgence of sin or spiritual laziness that would, that would threaten to disqualify him in this spiritual race. And we have to contend with the flesh as well as, as with the world. Our own remain, remaining sinful nature is among those... Uh, Threefold enemies. And then there is the evil one, the devil, who is joined with and who drives on these enemies of our souls, who goes about like a roaring lion, Peter says, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith is the exhortation of God's word to us as we face uh, this enemy. And from these enemies we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray for deliverance unto victory is our theme as we consider this sixth petition. And we begin by considering that this is our prayer in weakness and in danger. 
And weakness and danger really describes our actual condition, our condition now, our condition in this life, whatever our circumstances may be. In other words, it's not simply describing circumstances in which we feel our weakness, in which we confront them. It's not simply describing a crisis that we might encounter in our lives where we face danger. No, it's describing who we are. We are so weak that we can't stand against these enemies for a moment. And it is our wisdom, brothers and sisters, to welcome the kind of teaching of God's Word and even to welcome the kinds of providential circumstances that God brings into our lives to make us feel, to be aware of how vulnerable we are so that we might indeed continue in earnest prayer for deliverance from these very real enemies that we face that are too strong for us. When I am weak, then I am strong, the Apostle Paul says. Now, that doesn't mean that weakness itself makes us strong, but rather that the knowledge of our weakness serves for our strength because it makes us aware of how much we depend depend upon God to uphold us and to strengthen us in the reality of that weakness that characterizes our frail lives. Our greatest danger truly is in false confidence. Think of David. Uh, David was a military hero. David has slain his tens of thousands. That's what the the ladies would sing about his military prowess and, and victories and conquests. He was brave. As a young man, he took on Goliath. He was resourceful. He was skilled. Now, most men with a small fraction of David's actual physical skill in weaponry and tactics would consider it somehow belief beneath their manliness to call upon God in such a way as he does. Deliver me. Deliver me. Defend me. David knew his weakness. The renowned uh, professor of of systematics at Westminster uh, Seminary that I referred to last week, who taught uh, systematics for many decades there, he spoke of of his experience in uh, the trenches in World War uh, I and how he was disturbed by men uh, with whom he fought who... uh, uh, expressed a kind of rum-fueled bravado as they faced the enemy. While it was his practice, when not engaged in battle, to seek opportunities to withdraw and to be by himself, to read his Bible and to pray. In the awareness of his weakness, he was seeking strength from God, not in a bottle. He knew his weakness. Watch and pray. Uh, lest you enter into temptation. And those words were especially relevant when Jesus spoke them to the disciples before they entered Gethsemane and a real test to their faiths. But they're always relevant. Watch. You don't know the day or the hour of our Lord's return. We are to continue in, in vigilance and in prayer in view of the reality of our weakness. And the enemy that we carry within, that is our own sinful nature, would deceive us at this very point. 
In our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns the saints in Corinth against idolatry. He warns them against sexual immorality, against against tempting Christ, uh, against complaining. And in the context, he makes abundantly clear that their privilege, the blessings that they knew as baptized communicants of the church didn't exempt them or didn't remove the danger of succumbing to such sins. And he makes his case based on the the history of God's people in the wilderness, the people of Israel, who shared in those old covenant types of the New Testament sacraments. They partook of Christ in the water from the rock and from the manna. And yet with most of them, God was not well pleased, and they perished in the wilderness because of those sins that he enumerates and the judgments that they brought upon themselves because of their disobedience and unbelief. Let him who thinks he stands, Paul says in verse 12, take heed lest he fall. Temptation is nothing to take lightly. The real dangers that we face in our daily life are nothing to uh, toy with. We dare not play at the edges of sin and temptation. If I'm speaking to someone, it's probably less likely in the second service, but if I'm speaking to anyone who is characterized by negligence of the means of grace, who habitually absents themselves from the worship of God, and who is not practicing regular disciplines of the Christian life in terms of prayer, in terms of Bible reading. Are you really sure that things will not get worse? Are you confident that no harm will come to you from such negligence? On what basis? Or if I speak to someone whose friends are unbelievers, or who may be nominal Christians, but they do not take God seriously, And that's evident in the way they talk, in the way they think. Do you think that you can have such close associates and spend your time with them and not be hurt by it? Not be influenced in a detrimental way to your own spiritual life? Do you really think that evil communications does not corrupt good manners? And yet you're, you're in no danger of adopting the ways of those who are careless about the things of God? On what basis? Or if there are those among you who are accessing garbage on the Internet, on what grounds have you any confidence that you will not be drawn in deeper and deeper and deeper and become enslaved in such a way as to destroy and to corrupt your life? Or for those who may be drinking too much and you know it, what makes you think that it will not get worse? What makes you think that you can control it? What makes you think that you can quit at any time? Now, that's what alcoholics say, right? Drunks are typically uh, convinced that they could stop whenever they get good and ready to. But in the meantime, they follow this practice which draws them deeper and deeper into bondage to sin. Or are you feeding discontent in your life? Nursing a kind of dissatisfaction and unhappiness with your circumstances. 
not fighting it. Do you think that that's no big deal? Or if you're nursing a grudge and you're nursing unforgiveness and resentment toward others, how do you know that you will not become consumed by bitterness? How do you know that you will not be found among the unforgiven if you indulge such unforgiveness and bitterness in your hearts towards others? See, brothers and sisters, I've just described some of the things that lead people away from the faith. But what they all have in common is that they are not aware of their spiritual weakness and danger such that it is part of their lives to call upon God with such petitions as these. I'm not saying they have to pray these words literally, verbally. But what such people have in common is they are not aware of their spiritual weakness and their need for God's grace to uphold them, to deliver them from their own sinful inclinations with a kind of seriousness and an earnestness that takes the reality of this spiritual fight seriously in a very personal way. This is our prayer in our weakness and in our danger. Our confidence cannot be in ourselves. It must be in God. And that must be expressed by such a humble prayer as our Lord Jesus taught us when he said, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil. In such prayer, we pray for preserving grace. Uh, we pray that God would uphold us. That's the key word here in uh, answer 127. That's uh, the preserving grace that we're looking at. You know that the uh, the opposing sides in any kind of warfare, the goal of these opposing sides is what? It's to overrun the enemy. The goal is to positively uh, defeat them. It's not simply to defend uh, against them. But our enemies are constantly on the offense. They're constantly engaged in positively attacking us with the goal of overthrowing us. And it's a great achievement to give no ground. It is a great achievement just to stand, to stand fast in the Lord, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, Paul says. And then he describes all this defensive armor that is to characterize the Christian in this spiritual warfare against enemies who are on the attack constantly. God demonstrates his power by preserving us in this warfare, by keeping us from falling. He is able to keep you from falling. And he does that in different ways. His providence delivers his children from temptation. Sometimes he delivers people from oppressive rulers so that they are spared the consequence of the weight of opposition such as would otherwise overcome them. The days of tribulation that Jesus speaks of will be shortened for the sake of the elect. Otherwise, the very elect would not be saved. Of course, that's impossible. 
but God preserves their souls also by his providence. And sometimes that means limited, limiting opposition, limiting temptations that would otherwise simply be too strong for them. His providence delivers us from temptation. I spoke to a Christian once who observed that uh, they lost their job at a time when, yeah, it created hardship for them. It was difficult. But in hindsight, they came to see it as a blessing because they were growing aware of the fact that it was becoming harder and harder to maintain their Christian profession in that line of work, in those circumstances in which they worked. And God's solution was to take them out of it and deliver them from temptation. In his providential leading in our lives, sometimes he rescues us from situations that are just too much for us. Affliction can serve that purpose. Even death itself may remove God's children from trials that would be too hard to bear. But secondly, God gives special grace. God gives grace to bear uh, temptations while uh, we escape the danger that they pose to our souls. That's what Paul speaks of in verse 13, where he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You've heard that expression, God never gives us anything more than what we can handle. And I know that that's a kind of an attempt to somehow capture the teaching of this verse, but it misses something very important. It almost suggests that we have a, a certain reservoir of strength, and uh, that strength is sufficient to face temptation. God won't give us more than uh, our strength. Well, that removes the faithfulness of God from the picture. We have no strength in ourselves. Whatever we ability we may possess in terms of inherent grace is the work of the Holy Spirit and His ongoing, sanctifying, preserving work in our lives. But it's the faithfulness of God that keeps us. Enables us to recognize the way of escape so that we do not sin in the midst of temptation, and may yet be able to bear temptation without falling under it. That's his work. And that's true, whatever the temptation uh, may be. In other words, temptation is never beyond the power of God to sustain us in that temptation or to remove it from us. But it's his preserving grace that we rely on, not on our own strength. In fact, God's ways of keeping his saints are many. They are amazing. He uses a great variety of means. Remember what he used in the case of David? He used his uh, uh, rather uh, creative wife at this time, Micah. And she, she made this dummy and put it in his bed and uh, tried to fool the enemies that David was sick and he couldn't come down. And they came to arrest him and saw this dummy that she had, uh, made and uh, they went down and told Saul, no, he's sick. And he says, well, kill him in his bed. But that gave David time to escape. The Lord delivered him by such means. God can send the right person to speak to us. God can put the right book in our hands. God can give us just exactly the sermon that we need and give us the application that the Holy Spirit makes that the minister never thought of and use those kinds of things to preserve us, to deliver us 
in temptation. He is the sovereign God. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly from temptation. You know, that's quoted in Second Peter with reference to, to Lot. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly from temptation. How did he do it? He got Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. In his providence, in his intervention, he changed the circumstances and rescued him in that way. We're in the hands of a sovereign God. That ought to make us content with our changing circumstances. They may be hard, but God may be saving our souls through them. They may be the very thing that in his wise providence, he knows that we need. And that should be of great comfort to us. He is the sovereign Lord. And so all things work together to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. We pray for such preserving grace. And then thirdly, in this uh, petition, we pray for strength to resist until the end. The outcome of our fight is not uncertain. Uh, The God of peace shall shortly crush Satan under your feet, is what uh, Paul assures the Christians there in Rome. They share in Christ victory over the evil one. And that victory will become manifested in time. Psalm 59, we read this psalm which has two uh, clear, distinct sections. Both of them begin uh, with pleas for God's help in the face of these evil powers that threaten, and each of them ends on a note of triumph. We hear the note of triumph following the first section in verse 8 through 10. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. These enemies and their might and their power and their uh, malicious and uh, vicious intent, well, they have no power against the Lord. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. And then following the second section, again, where the psalmist speaks of the the uh, intent of these enemies that surround him. But, verse 16, I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the time of trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All these requests we make, knowing that God, as our great king, is able and he is willing to give all that we ask so that his name may be glorified. It most certainly will be. Amen. And this certainty inspires our act of resistance. The power of God preserves us, but it's the power of God that also empowers us. Make us so strong by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. The saints of God not only stand, but they go onward from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. Our spiritual warfare 
is not merely defensive, but it is active, it is resolute, it is vigorous, it is, it is aggressive. Not against people, but how is this for aggressive? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Isn't that an exhilarating description of spiritual warfare? I encourage young men to rise to the challenge of waging this spiritual warfare. I think there is kind of a natural tendency to want to uh, be powerful and strong among young men. And our world utterly corrupts and perverts that into gross and harmful violence. John writes to young men because they are strong and have overcome the wicked one. Turn your manly vigor into this spiritual warfare to fight against your sins. To be strong in faith. To be an example among your friends. To be the kind of man that will be appealing and attractive to godly young women. Rise to that challenge. There's a kind of aggression a kind of resolute and vigorous character to the Christian warfare. Not in our own strength. Not against people in a hostile way, but against the lies of the evil one. Let's search and destroy them. Let's resist them. Let's speak against them. Let's expose them. Wage war against the enticements of the world. Wage war against the deceptions of our own flesh. If you through the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't be defeated in this spiritual warfare. When you fall, rise up again. Though you fall seven times, rise up again. Our deliverance from evil is not just survival. It is deliverance from uh, a crippling kind of worldliness from from a depressed and defeated mindset of unbelief. It's deliverance from the accuser's joy-killing lies. We pray as a spiritual army, utterly weak in ourselves, but strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, like a spiritual army that is on the move, and we pray for deliverance unto victory. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And let, let that motivate us. Let it uh, inspire us with joy and a sense of purpose. Not self-confidence. Not belligerence. Not a brashness. Not arrogance. But humbly trusting in God. Amen.